The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Thought I'd talk tonight about this attitude of loving kindness, vetta, is the word we use often, and it really refers to this full range of beautiful qualities, beautiful attitudes, you could even say beautiful emotions. And um, this isn't really in the Buddhist teachings, but it seems to me that, um, you know, just generally through human evolution, that human beings have found ways to liberate our, you know, ourselves from the torments, the habitual torments of greed and hate, disconnection, distraction, in one of two ways. There's sort of the wisdom way, which is this maybe analytical mind, you could say, this investigative mind that takes a closer look it starts to deconstruct, right? So there's this seeming person here that's suffering because of my torments, my what's going on, and I take a closer look. I deconstruct what's happening, and I don't find anybody who's got a problem, right? The sense of there being somebody with a problem because of the conditions going on in my life upon this closer, careful, deconstructing investigation that what seemed to be a personal problem doesn't seem to be a personal problem anymore. That's kind of the wisdom approach. We take a close look. We practice seeing things just as they are. It's like, uh, you know, in a simplistic way, I'm really hurting. You know, my heart really hurts. I want to go home, I'm tired, you know. And then, you know, the practice, the wisdom practice kicks in and I deconstruct it. You know, there's this sensation in the body, there's this mental image arising. And it's like a person taking apart a car. You know, we got all the pieces here and more pieces there and it's all laid out. And it doesn't really look like a car, you know. It's just a bunch of stuff on the ground. And it's the same thing. That's sort of the wisdom approach to uncovering freedom. We take it apart. We take apart what appears to be something very personal, the joys and sorrows I'm experiencing. And love is the other sort of liberating movement. And love is a different movement but the same result, right? The result to freedom, non-suffering. And so the movement of love is, it's like no matter what to include. You too, yes, this too, you belong. I don't know how I'm going to let you in, but I'm letting you in, you know. It's like, we don't like, most of us, we don't like mosquitoes or maybe other things like, you know, centipedes or rattlesnakes or 
certain politicians or you know, <laughs> this is and that's. But it's, it's one thing to know I want to keep some distance from something. And it's another thing to throw that creature out of our heart, to not care. Just because we don't want to be close doesn't mean I hate mosquitoes. Right? So that like everything belongs, it doesn't mean I'm going to like invite mosquitoes into my bedroom at night. But I'm not going to actively throw them out of my heart. I'm not going to actively have ill will. I mean, think about that. Like when you actually consider it clearly, there's not too many things, people, creatures, that we really justify, feel justified, justified in hating. I mean, it doesn't mean we don't hate, of course, but when we, you know, in the light of day, in the light of awareness, look at our hating, we may not be able to stop ourselves from hating somebody, being angry at somebody, wanting something bad to happen to them. But we don't, at the same time, we don't actually own that hate. Yeah, that hate's there. But I'm not, you know, I don't believe in the hate. It's there. It's only, we only believe in it when we're not looking at it. When we actually look at hate, it doesn't make sense. That's you know just in terms of checking that out both in our afternoon loving kindness practice, but just generally from time to time during the day. You know, in the same way, if we if our mind is all entangled, we'll look at that, just open to it, and just in that being mindful, being relaxed and interested, and seeing it as a natural process, it's sort of the drama falls apart, at least at times, right? Or lightens up at least. But we can, you know, we have this other move too, where we, whether it lightens up or not, whether wisdom clarifies what's going on or not, honey, you belong. The mind's all entangled. The mind's wild. The mind's reactive. The mind's a hungry beast. And, you know, it's uh, it's so interesting when, you know, we catch our mind doing something really inappropriate. I often joke, but it's not a joke at all. It's really true. I'll, I'll find a quote, I think, later this evening, but from Ajahn Sumedho on the subject of when we see our mind doing something that we're not proud of at all, really despicable or having a thought that we shouldn't be having, I think one of the sure signs of the development of the practice is, one, not being shocked that that thought, that mental activity is there, and two, like no trace, like no shame, no I'm better than that. It's just a thought. 
just a despicable or just an inappropriate thought. There it is, maybe a feeling, there it is, just this. Right? That's metta, right? Not having to reject anything. Someone left me a note recently, <laughs> speaking for many of us, just talking about the resistance to loving kindness. And uh, I forget where this is from, but one of Ajahn Sumedho's writings, he writes, when I first came to England, I asked people, do you practice metta, loving kindness? And they said, oh, I can't stand it. So I asked, well, what do you think it is? And they said, well, it's that kind of smarmy whitewashing of your mind where you say you love absolutely everything. You're supposed to try to convince yourself that you love your enemies and that you love yourself. Can you imagine spending an hour just thinking about how you love yourself? I had to look up the word smarmy, S-M-A-R-M-Y, ingratiating, wheedling, in a way that is perceived as insincere or excessive. Well, yeah, I mean, we'd all reject that kind of idea of love, you know, anything that feels sentimental or idealistic. So it's really important as we experiment and play with these so-called wholesome attitudes of mind that we have a very pragmatic, practical approach. I really um, appreciate Ajahn Sumedho's teachings on metta and loving-kindness because they are that way. They're very down-to-earth. One of the points he makes, makes over and over again is metta is the absence of ill-will. I remember him telling a story once about, you know, somebody coming to him and just saying how much anger or whatever. And uh, so Ajahn Sumedho asked him, well, did you say anything bad? Did you act out? He said, no, but I'm really upset. I'm really angry. But in a way that, like, knowing that the anger is just anger and it shouldn't be acted out, that restraint is an expression of metta. One of the reasons I like this uh, idea of metta being that quality of mind, that attitude of mind that knows how to include. Not intellectually this belongs. It's it's kind of exists on a deeper level. It's like a I mean, and it's not always strong, but you know, part of the reason I'm talking about it and part of the reason we formally practice loving kindness meditation is to highlight this value and strengthen this value which is that everything belongs. Everything belongs because it's here. Not everything belongs because 
somehow abstractly, theoretically, I decided what belongs, and that was one of the things I decided on. It's not like it belongs in that way. Love is really more grounded than that. It's like it's here. It's already here. And it's not skillful to not want it to be here when it's here. What's functional, pragmatically functional, is to be this embracing, yeah, welcome, because you're here. <laughs> you know, It's like people show up at your door, you really wanted to be alone, but there they are. The skillful thing to do is to welcome them. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm not saying in all conditions, but you know what I mean? Like if they're going to come in anyway, if, <laughs> if there's no way you can say, leave me alone, right? That's just, for whatever reason, it's your mother or something like that, or your cat. <laughs> You're going to say, come on in, right? So then, you see, not about what's right or wrong, but what's skillful, what's useful is to have that quality of love, of embracing. Yeah, you belong here. I'm not going to say, I'm not going to open the door and grumble because it's painful. What's, what's pleasant, you know, relatively speaking, is to open the door. It's like, what do we say sometimes? And to pretend like I wanted this to happen. Because it is happening. I think there was that line in, um, they published, um, that interview that Joseph Campbell did with Bill Moyer, or <laughs> Bill Moyers did with Joseph Campbell way back when, The Power of Myth. And uh, and I think he makes, Joseph Campbell makes this point um, in one passage that I really like, a couple pages in that interview. He says something like, you know, as if you imagine, as if you chose it, chose these conditions, these people, this relationship not because because it's a skillful thing to do and this is another piece of the the Buddhist teachings that I find so useful it's not idealistic or abstract it's just about what helps it's really grounded in that way what attitude helps metta is a pragmatically functional attitude of mind it works. And we're basically being invited to check it out. Does it work? Because that, like I talked a little bit about this the first night around generosity, which of course is very much related to metta, loving kindness. And it's like a different gravitational pull. You know, when, we're, when our mind is under the influence of self-view, self-drama, self-centeredness then there's you know everything is in terms of me and mine what I like what I don't like but when there's a generous spirit a kind attitude it's like it's a it's coming from this place of abundance and contributing and radiating out as soon as 
we have the self-centered frame, then there's fear and anxiety and greed. There's all kinds of disturbances that can't not be there when there's that self-centered frame. I mean, isn't this true? Like when you were in a difficult place, you know, sometimes we're in a really difficult place. You know, the heart's really heavy, nothing seems to be working. And then, you know, when we're lucky, something shows up in our life that breaks our heart open and we show up. You know, we respond, we help, we listen, and we, in a funny way, are saved by that opportunity to be generous or to be kind or to show up. Sometimes it's even to ourselves, like we're the one showing up for ourselves. It's interesting, you know, I haven't really taken that many vacations over the years. Uh, Because, you know, with my free time, I usually go on retreat a lot. And uh, so, and, you know, we visit, you know, my parents and Wynn's parents, but that's not really vacation. And and I find that when I do go on vacation, it's like, you know, I'm not necessarily that happy. (laughs) I'm more happy when there's something I can do that seems to be needed to be done. Like that kind of happiness, that contributing in some way. I mean, I feel that when I take care of myself, when I cook a nice meal or clean up my space or you know, take care of business, take care of the paperwork that I need to take care of, that feels good too. But like when I, I'm supposed to go play, I don't really know how to do that anymore. <laughs> I'm not saying that's healthy, but I just noticed that. Like, the, the guaranteed place where I can find happiness is doing a project that will benefit myself and others. You know, setting things in motion, planting good seeds, There's a couple um, quotes I've been really enjoying playing with in my own mind over the last several months. You might have heard me use them. I've been repeating them a lot. One is from John Wellwood, who's a psychologist and um, someone who's really looked at the intersection of spirituality and Western psychology, especially Eastern um, mystical traditions, Buddhism included. And he has this great, I think, great quote. He says, we're not just human humans learning to become Buddhas. So that's, I would call that the wisdom move. You know, human beings who are using awareness to deconstruct experience and see that it's empty of self. Oh, it's just stuff happening. Just causes and conditions, doesn't refer back to anything. 
no self, no problem. Right? And he's saying we're not just humans learning to become Buddhas, learning to see that all of this doesn't refer back to anything. It's just nature, not self. That's what I've been talking about as the third instruction, right? Wise view. And he goes on, that also Buddhas waking up in human form, learning to become fully human. See, that's, the I think, the love move, the metta move, where Buddhas learning to be embodied, to have an aging body in relationship, which are often messy and confusing, in all these different you know, webs of community that we inhabit, with a conditioned mind, a mind that was conditioned, is being conditioned by culture, not usually a pretty picture, right? How our minds have been conditioned, hearts been conditioned by culture. So it's like that movement of love, that liberating love is including the limitations that come with having a body and a conditioned mind. Learning how to include all that. To not be afraid of it. Or, to be very specific, to not trust ill will. To not have faith in ill will. To see that aversion, fear, you know, any of the expressions of ill will, aversion, never helpful. It will arise because of habit, of course, but when we see it, right, oh yeah, honey, that's not helping. But we can have metta for the ill will. Oh, you're upset. You want to hit back. You want to throw that out of your heart. And I care about that. I'm going to include your ill will. Right? So we don't reject ill will, we include it. That's how it's transformed. A related quote um, that I just found recently, I had it in my notes, I had, I had forgotten it, um, but it's some translation of a line from Rumi because we know that, I guess even back at the time of Rumi, there was sort of that sentiment, we're just a drop in the ocean. And it's hard to know with a lot of these quotes from Rumi because uh, a lot of the people translating, and uh, they're, it's very creative translations of Rumi, so who knows whether this is the literal translation of Rumi's line. But the... The line from the poetry goes something like, um, we're not a drop in the ocean, we're the ocean in a drop. Something like that. And that's the same sentiment, right? An ocean in the drop. And so love is, love is that attitude that remains an ocean unbounded in the very limited form 
of our lives. Because right? our, our lives are quite limited. Like even the capacity of my intellect, I see all the time its limitations with language, with comprehension. There's limits to my strength. You know, there's limits to my body in many different ways now, especially as I've gotten older. There's all kinds of limits. You know, I'm limited by my conditioned mind. I see that all the time when I'm meditating. You know, it's not, this is not the mind I want, but it's the mind that's here. Have you noticed sometimes, like when you're sitting and, um, you know, I can see the sort of subtle tension being bound and then releasing. Like I, I can really sense the possibility of just putting down a lot of physical, mental, emotional, psychic tension, right? Because I see the play of it sort of getting bound, a little less bound. But it's like, I'm not in control. And wanting to put it down, of course, is not the way. Or thinking that it's just a matter of willpower to put it down. There's an old uh, phrase, I think it goes all the way back to the time of the Buddha about, I think relates to this in some way about these teachings. And now tonight, the teachings on loving kindness. You know, they, when we have the limitations of our life, our body, our conditioned mind, the limitations of the circumstances, the duties and responsibilities, our karmic situation in life that we have, our class, you know, whether we're somebody who's privileged or somebody who's being oppressed in different ways, whether we're in an orderly place or a disorderly, chaotic place. You know, we're, uh, this, this capacity of love it's like this ability to transcend not the place, not the limitations of the mind and body, but to transcend the unhelpful reaction to limitations, which is to get tight, to suffer. We can transcend that. And that's really the attitude of love is this liberating way to transcend the prison, the oppressive prison of ill will. And so we, it, on the retreat, like as a, you know, just an ongoing practice, first be um, sensitive, resolve to be sensitive to the different flavors of ill will, which would include boredom and fear, anxiety, 
worry, somebody irritating you, even like rage that we can have when somebody keeps irritating us, or um, things that aren't even here on retreat, but coming up from memories of thoughts about some situation back home that generates a lot of anger. And then to really see that as a kind of imprisonment, you know, being caught in the fear, the aversion, the worry, the hate, is really being imprisoned, trapped. And then experiment with the attitude of love. And love, they, the image that's used in the Buddhist tradition, it's, it knows how to show up in the same way that water can fill any vessel, no matter its shape. Metta knows how to include, right? That's, that's its very nature, that embracing, inclusive, you belong. And so it's the alternative to ill will or fear. This is from another different article from uh, Ajahn Sumedho writing about metta. Yeah, this is just a great article. We have it up on our website because it's in a book. It's not online. And the article is called Nothing is Left Out, The Practice of Loving Kindness. And the book, you might have seen, Voices of Insight. It was edited by Sharon Salzberg. It was a book that a bunch of uh, the IMS teachers mostly put together um, to raise some money for Ram Das when he first had a stroke way back when. Some of you know Ram Das, know of him. And uh, this was Ajahn Sumedho's contribution to that book, Voices of Insight. Nothing is left out, the practice of loving kindness. he writes, metta includes the totality of our world and experience. It includes every possibility, the born and the unborn, the created and the uncreated, those who are present and those who are absent. With metta, loving kindness, we contemplate all phenomena, all sentient beings in terms of loving kindness and inclusiveness, rather than in divisive terms of which is best, which is worse, what we like, what we don't like. Metta then is the way we relate to the totality. And then a little later in this article, in this way we develop a sense of well-being, recognizing that everything belongs in the totality, that there is nothing we can think of or imagine nothing that has ever happened to us that doesn't belong. This is about the time where someone says, well, what about the Holocaust? And I think it's a fair, I mean, these are sort of, I think it's really useful to reflect just in ordinary ways about where we draw the line. And then to play the edge, what would happen if I didn't draw the line there? 
you know, you could just bring to mind a politician that rubs you the wrong way or some public figure that rubs you, entertainer that rubs you the wrong way. And just contemplate including that person in your heart as a human being, a suffering human being, doing the best they can. Doesn't mean we agree with them, of course, or even we'll support them. But we're choosing not to hate them, choosing not to have ill will, choosing not to wish harm or And just see what comes of that. Or, you know, the next person who cuts you off on the freeway, you know, who's really being a jerk and unsafe, has their cell phone out or something, driving in a crazed kind of way. It's like to really see it as a choice, ill will or kindness. What, what will help? I'm not about helping that guy. Right? Just what will help this heart right now? What would be useful? What attitude of mind would be useful right now? This is a great little passage. Some of you know Kendrick, a long-time Comgon person. She sent me this a while back from Gwendolyn Brooks. Um, a person who won the Pulitzer Prize way back when, maybe in the 50s or 60s, African-American woman, from her, this is from her novel, Maud Martha. And she wrote here, Go home to your children, she urged, to your wife or husband. She opened the trap, the mouse vanished. Suddenly she was conscious of a new cleanness in her, a wide air walked in her. A life had blundered its way into her power, and it had been hers to preserve or destroy. She had not destroyed. In the center of that simple restraint was creation. She had created a piece of life. It was wonderful. Why, she thought, as her height doubled, why, I'm good, I'm good. She ironed her aprons. Her back was straight. Her eyes were mild and, a, and soft with a godlike loving kindness. I just find that very potent, right? This simple act. I mean, this is not that rare. I mean, not in our house where we take the time to save a spider, you know, or just these little acts of including where we could, you know, act out some ill will. Like, it would be socially acceptable to act out some ill will. But we decided not to. It's always interesting that IMS, it's a little bit like it has been here recently, like really humid, especially in the summer where I've been teaching recently in August there. And... uh, been just more and more humid it seems as the years go by and lots of rain sometimes and uh, it's a really uh, heavily wooded area in Massachusetts, middle of the state and the earthworms will crawl onto the road. Carol spent a lot of time at IMS knows this. 
And then it's always like when you're walking on the road, walking the loop, we call it, it's always a question like, will that earthworm make it across, you know? Or should I just grab it and toss it back? Because, you know, it's, when it's wet, they, they get out of the soil because there's too much water in the soil, they can't breathe. But then, you know, they're subject to the birds and to the sun, to drying out and, you know, going places where they won't be able to get into the ground. And there's lots of little things like this that happen all the time, putting something away that you didn't leave out. Someone left some water on the counter in the bathroom. Do you leave it for the next person to be bothered by? Or do we clean it up? Like, can that be included? Or do we somehow reject the water and the person, right? And we'll... You know, it's amazing how our mind will put in who we think did it. <laughs> Even if we have absolutely no information. Or we'll have our group. You know, or we'll know who didn't do it. So it's some of those other people. <laughs> don't feel bad. I don't think there's any way to keep our bathrooms from being wet with all this humidity. <laughs> it just seems like there's water everywhere in the bathroom. But I guess that the real important point is just to be interested in how we can play, cultivate this attitude of metta, of including, of having that embracing quality. Oh yeah, it is this way now. This is showing up internally, if it's like an attitude or a you know, like your will even. Oh yeah, there is, it is here already. So welcome. Here another story from Ajahn Sumedho. He worked really hard, it took a while. Um, but he found, you know, as the organization, the monasteries that were, he was sort of responsible for setting up here in the West, several of them, and more and more people were coming to ordain, and it was kind of big organization. And, you know, it attracted a lot of great folks, and he found, even though he was the senior person, and it's a system that's very hierarchical based on seniority, so he had, you know, he had the power, he was the guy in charge, but he found himself getting really jealous of all these wonderful people showing up, charismatic teachers, you know, people who had been around and then sort of starting to shine because the practice was developing, and, and he'd find himself getting jealous, and he didn't, you know, he knew one thing, the senior monk was not supposed to be jealous, right? That was not a cool thing, to be jealous of your subordinates, your sort of your original, I mean, originally they were all students of his. And so, of course, we do what we do, we suppress it or repress it, you know, or pretend it isn't there. None of that works. And then, you know, as he described it, and it wasn't like a brilliant choice. It was like nothing was left except to have metta for the jealousy, for the that embarrassing, you know, unpleasant quality in the mind. Okay, jealousy. I'm not going to try to get rid of you. I'm not going to pretend you're not there. I'm going to include you. 
I'm going to allow this mind and heart to be the way that it is. I mean, that's kind of frightening, isn't it, for us? Because a lot of the reason we got out to this trip, you know, this Buddhism trip, is like, I got to fix this thing. You know, my mind, my heart, this life, it's just not acceptable. I mean, we're all so incredibly imperfect <laughs> looking around the room, right? Isn't that true? Anybody perfect? <laughs> Anybody feeling perfect right now? No, we don't feel perfect. Oh, except for Emil. <laughs> That's the way I'm supposed to be. That's called a deluded type. <laughs> It's its own special brand of suffering. <laughs> yeah, the greedy type, you know, it sort of has the most elaborate, shiny images of who I could become. <laughs> the aversive type is sure what the, who they, you know, what's here that they don't want to be, you know, what we want to get rid of. And the deluded type, you know, is either going, huh? Or saying, I'm already there. <laughs> well, I don't even know what we're talking about. <laughs> But we're one of those three. I'm not, I don't know what Emil is, but I'm just using that as an example. And it, but I, I find it really powerful when I'm on retreat and my own stuff is on full display. And, you know, even when I'm teaching retreats nowadays, I can practice a lot. Um, in the early days, I just had to work a lot just to get ready for the talks and, and other things. But, you know, now I, I'm able to sit a lot when I'm on retreat with you all. And I see, what do you see? You know, I see a conditioned mind expressing the momentum of habit energy, right? And I see some wisdom, I see some love, I see nature, I see the whole thing. And it's just interesting to, uh, yeah, to really not be freaked out by being an ordinary human being with ordinary delusion and ordinary greed, ordinary hate, to see it expressing itself in the heart and mind. And like I said early on, earlier on in the talk, I see that as a, one of the most authentic barometers for the practice, the development of the practice, that we can allow that kind of disturbing messiness. We can give it the space it wants, let it blossom. Not act it out blossom, but internally. We're not repressing it. We're not ashamed of it. We're not trying some Dharma move to hurry it along. Because there's confidence that, I mean, just on the basic level, the confidence is any reaction will hurt, so I'm not going to react. I'm going to stay soft, I'm going to relax. Right? First step. It's like, I don't know much, but I have a lot of confidence in staying relaxed. Right? And when that seems like at least somewhat in motion, the relaxation then, then maybe I'll consider being interested. Opening putting down some of the armor, 
checking under the rug. What else is here? What else can be felt, seen here? What is here but, but isn't being, hasn't yet been acknowledged or recognized? So that, that interest really is mostly about humility. Humility is the ground of interest, of curiosity. And it's like a chicken and egg, you know, we can do that because there's some wisdom, so that third piece. We understand that whatever it is, it's just what it is. It's just this thing showing up and being known, some movement of the mind and body, some movement of life, really, or some movement of nature. It's interesting, you know, I don't know much about birds, but every once in a while I'll kind of read a little bit, and and some of you have heard me talk about this, like I read about, I, I forget what type of sparrow it is, but one of these invasive species of birds that are everywhere now in North America, or most places in North America, and I think they originally came from England, and they're very aggressive, and... Uh, but but now, like, I have an attitude whenever I see them. <laughs> you don't belong here. <laughs> I didn't put those seeds out for you, you know. It's like I have ill will for them. Are you going to say something? I have a question. Oh, yeah. So, with including, I'm a little confused. Isn't hate or ill will also something natural? Why wouldn't it be included? Yeah, no, absolutely. We, that's what I've been saying. You, you include, like the jealousy, you know, well, we include it. But it sounds to me, it's like, if somebody did this, you know, give the other chick is what you are saying. No, no, no. Saying. No, uh, what I'm saying is that the ill will, right, to uh, act out ill will isn't functional. But does it mean that you turn the other cheek, although that may be the skillful thing to do. You'll just figure out what the skillful thing to do is. But what's clear is that the ill will is a kind of being identified with ill will as an imprisonment. But hating ill will is just more ill will. You know, rejecting it or hating myself for having ill will. So we include the ill will. But what we do in response to some insult, that should be assessed based on a mind that is balanced and really looking at what would be helpful. Right? It's a pragmatic question. What do I say or do I not say anything? What do I do or do I not do anything? We don't want the choice of what we're going to say or do to be skewed by that attitude of ill will. The attitude of love, or metta, is really the absence of ill will. I mean, we, we, we talk about it as a positive thing, love, but it's really the mind without ill will. That's what love is. Nothing in the mind separating. So then we can actually sense or feel into what might be helpful in that moment to say or do or to not say or do. We're not being driven by ill will. 
because otherwise ill will just drives the you know drives the personality okay, so it's fine. Can, can you distinguish between anger ill will and hatred and then the other thing is so say if you're like if you're have to relate to someone who's abusive um like when I was doing my um, my mental meditation, it was going really well, so we got to the part of okay. And then, like for for folks who are active, who are acting out towards you in an abusive manner, so say for if you're in a domestic violence relationship mm-hmm. or and that type of how the, how what is a pragmatic approach when that when those types of beings come into the mind and you get real tight because it can stop the flow. So. Yeah, but we can have metta right for ourselves because of that feeling overwhelmed or feeling oppressed by that situation or the the memories of that situation. So it's just a question of like, what uh, what could use the metta? What needs to, what needs taking care of in this moment? I'm feeling a little overwhelmed. Oh well, let me let me show up. Let me respond to that. And remember, you know, if you've been around some parents, love can be quite fierce, you know. But it's it's not like you're throwing that person out of your heart. It's like it just needs a loud voice right now. The situation requires a loud voice as much as we can understand. So there's, I think there's lots of examples of where love can be fierce, can be strong, can be loud. But... It's not something that we figure out, like how to respond. It's really where we're, where the mind, where activity or action is arising out of. Is it arising out of ill will? And then how does that work? Is it helpful? Or is it arising out of wisdom or love? And then how does that work? Is it helpful? You know, we're just kind of seeing what actually works. Does acting out of ill will help? Sometimes when we're taking care of ourselves, we're really in a place of metta, and we say to somebody else something that really hurts them. But it isn't that we have ill will towards that person. We have this clarity that love can provide that I, I need to take care of myself. This is not okay. And we might not actually have much clarity about what that person needs or doesn't need. All we might have clarity around is what I need to to feel more safe. And we're acting out of that. Why would we presume or why would we put on ourselves that we have to be perfectly skillful or not harm anybody? Have you ever seen that in nature where no harm is done? It just doesn't happen in nature, you know. It's a one creature eating other creatures all the time. So it's really about what attitude we have learned to trust and what attitude we've seen as an oppressive state of mind. And once we kind of get some clarity based on our own experience, then deciding to live in accordance with what life has showed us. Not what the Buddha said, not what somebody else said, but what we've actually seen in our own life, what actually helps.
useful to kind of ground it in our experience right now or in any moment, but this is the moment we have. Because, you know, in this experience, we can be cultivating an attitude of non-ill will right now. The experience of the body and mind, the totality of what's being known. So if we're willing to relax and include, be intimate, allow this moment to express itself, or we could be relating with aversion, and maybe we are in some ways, Words like acceptance and allowing and opening, you know, they get, they've been a little bit overused. And it's a little bit like when somebody tells us to relax. (laughs) It can go the the other way. But in, in the Buddha's teachings, this is the first real insight is to know the difference. It's sort of in real time in our own heart to recognize the difference between what's skillful and unskillful. And all of the confidence and the deepening sense of self-reliance and independence is really built on, and you can check it out for yourself, the basic understanding that there are some attitudes of mind that don't help. And there are some attitudes of mind that help. And then it's just a matter of starting to live in accordance with that. And so when we get a set of teachings like tonight, you know, focusing on metta, loving kindness, compassion, these beautiful attitudes, four beautiful attitudes, compassion, appreciative joy, equanimity, and loving kindness, The question is, does that align with our lived experience? That when the mind is relating in these ways, where there isn't, the mind isn't dominated by ill will, how functionally, how does our life function? Is it lighter? Are we more skillful, more able to engage, do what needs to be done? When we're more caught and fear, anxiety, hate, any kind of negativity, because they're just different expressions of aversion. And the, the thing that we have to see is we, it's not about the outer expression, because that's, that's what we want to tend to look at. What does it look on the surface? But it's more about the subtle level of the attitude of the mind or the the view of the mind. Where ill will is a kind of, uh, comes out of a sense of separation. There's somebody that feels threatened. Somebody where non-ill will is a different point of view. It's a different view, arising out of a different view. And you know, a lot of the teachings on view, it's really subtle work. So the way we get a, a sense of what we mean by wise view 
is we work on a level where it's a little bit easy to recognize, like the level of attitude. Some of you know the sort of Eightfold Path. So there's wisdom, right view, which I just said is kind of subtle, like right view could be uh, knowing that everything's nature, not self. But then the Buddha says, yeah, but coming out of right view is right intention. And right intention is the intention to let go, the intention to be kind, the intention to be compassionate. Well, that we know a little bit more about. So wise view is the view when it's there that will have these three attitudes of renunciation, kindness, and compassion. So you may never know what wise view is, but you can know whether there's that willingness to let go, to be content, to be kind, to be compassionate, one of those three attitudes. Or whether they're the opposite attitudes of greediness or hate, fear. And that's probably not wisdom. And then you go from wisdom to right intention, and then all this sort of more surface level, like right action, right speech, right livelihood, they flow out of the intentions of contentment, kindness, and compassion. So, you know, when we talk about the teachings, we talk about different levels. Sometimes we're really on the level of, you shouldn't be killing mosquitoes. You know, so that's a more gross level but it provides sort of a, a window. Like, so when we have the tendency to want to hit it, that very explicit thing sort of helps us wake up. Okay, why is it bad to kill it? And we look. You know, we notice what it's like to kill and what it's like to just brush it away without harming it. And sometimes we talk about the sort of middle level of attitude, right? Which is a little bit more subtle than don't do that to the mosquito. And we're really looking at like, so is it love or is it hate? And when it's love, what does that set in motion? When it's hate, what is that? What kind of seeds are getting planted there? And then sometimes we talk about the most subtle, like on the level of view, self-view, self-centered view, or no, not self-view, the absence of self-view. And there are advantages and disadvantages to whatever level we're talking about the practice. You know, when we're more explicit, we can think it's just about not killing mosquitoes. But that's a pretty limited understanding of the Buddhist teachings, right? But if we're just talking about it on level of view, then it can seem very intellectual or abstract. So we we tend to talk about it on all frequencies, And it's for us to kind of take in and to reflect on. That's really this laboratory that we have this week. It's just to explore in the sort of relative simplicity of the environment that we have, metta. This attitude, this attitude of mind that is free of ill will. And when there is ill will, we have this inclusive kind attitude towards the ill will. You too belong. 
what would be a skillful way to relate to this ill will, to this impatience, to this frustration? Should I relate to it with ill will, relate to the ill will with ill will, or should I relate to the ill will with a mind, a heart, free of ill will, kindness? And then see what the results are. Whatever, whatever way you do it, like you relate to the ill will with ill will, with judgment, and then just see what that sets in motion. Or you relate to the ill will with patience and forgiveness or a sense of humor. And then what does that set in motion? So let's just take a few seconds first and let go of the words. for listening. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org dot org slash donate.